Um, I want to thank you all for coming. My name is Joanna Gaines. I'm a doctoral epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Yes, that CDC in Atlanta. Um, some of you are probably wondering why CDC may be here and why we would be interested in uh, missionaries and missionary health. And I hope after this presentation that you'll have a better understanding of that and some of the resources that we as a federal agency can provide to you as medical missionaries, either traveling out into the field or as um, physicians and, and healthcare providers, nurses, nurse practitioners, you know, the entire gamut of people who provide support services here in the U.S. for missionaries as they travel abroad. So, again, just thank you guys all for coming. We do really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I was told I needed to provide some disclosure information. I have no conflict of interest to disclose. Um, and also, just to review with you guys, for those of you who are here for um, CME credits, uh, the learning objectives are to describe the previous, objective, previous outbreaks of disease among missionaries, and then you'll, you'll be able to identify some of the available resources for travelers, um, as well as for clinicians to learn about health risks associated with international travel. We do have some one-page uh, handouts up here that you guys can grab on your way out if you don't have one already, and it'll just kind of give you a little bit more um, about, uh, you know, give you some information to different websites and links that you can use for additional resources. Um, so what I'm going to talk about here is I'm going to talk sort of briefly about why are missionaries at risk for illness and injury. I'm going to give you guys some specific examples of outbreaks um, or illnesses among missionaries. And then I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about how missionaries um, can prevent illnesses and outbreaks, specifically you, uh, information for you and your role as a healthcare provider. So looking globally at why we would care um, at CDC about, uh, you know, humanitarian aid workers and missionaries specifically, um, this is something that's just really, really becoming increasingly common. There is, you know, there are more disease outbreaks internationally. There is more conflict internationally, and we have more people from the United States traveling abroad. So global humanitarian staffing levels for internationally operating aid organizations have increased at a rate of 6% annually. And in 2008, this reached a total population of uh, just under, six, under 600,000 people um, traveling worldwide. So these are a lot of different healthcare workers. Some of them are missionaries. Some of them are, you know, more traditional um, or non-religious non affiliated uh, humanitarian aid workers. Um, these, but this, this figure here does include uh, missionaries as well as medical service workers or individuals traveling overseas to perform short or long-term humanitarian work. Globally, there's also, as I said before, really a significant need uh, for assistance due to disease outbreaks, conflict, and really the absence of medical care in many countries. So it's not just that, you know, there are outbreaks of disease, but there are no places for people to get basic preventive med medical care in the first place. Um, so when we think about, you know, why are missionaries at risk for illness and injury, this is something that is very tough for CDC to offer sort of hard data on as an agency. We like to, you know, all of our recommendations have to be evidence-based and based on strong, sound science so that we retain the trust of the American public. Um, and so from this, we've really seen really just from sort of, this is all based off of anecdotal data and, and sort of clusters in, of, of outbreaks and things like that. So it's, we don't have big, good surveillance on missionaries specifically, and that's something we're definitely interested in. But from what we've seen from working with different missionary organizations, we know that they face multiple challenges when preparing to travel above and beyond those of what we call a leisure traveler. So somebody who's saying, I'm going to go to Kenya to go on safari, 
They have different health risks than a missionary would. So first we know that missionaries may not seek uh, pre-travel consultations with clinicians. So some U.S. insurance companies don't cover such consultations, and, and they, you know, maybe they won't also cover the cost of things like recommended vaccines or medications. So it doesn't do you very good if you get, an ins- if you get a prescription for antimalarials, but your insurance company won't cover it. Um, also, because mission travel is often self-funded, missions, missionaries may find the cost of pre-travel health preparation prohibitive. We actually heard earlier today we had a similar session this morning, and we um, had a participant who told us that their organization actually requires travel insurance as part of their budget. So that's in their facts and figures that they give people when they say, okay, you're thinking about going on a mission trip with us you have to include in your budget, like, the amount of money that you're going to need to come on mission with us. It will include the cost of that travel medicine insurance. And so that's a really great idea that we heard this morning. Missionaries may also not be aware of the health issues that are associated with travel, um, or they may forget them, as you guys have a lot of other stuff that you've got to get done before you head out into the field. And this is one thing that can easily kind of fall by the wayside as you are getting prepared. Um, and the other, another thing is missionaries who are located in different parts of the United States may lack access to qualified travel medicine providers. Um, so, for example, I grew up in a really, really small town in Florida, um, and the first time I went overseas, I had to travel over an hour away to a different county to get a yellow fever vaccine because it wasn't a shot that I could get in my hometown. So that was something that my parents had to plan for. They had to figure out where I could get the shot, and then they had to get me there, get the shot, and get me home. Pre-travel medical care is just not, it's not as simple as going to your local health department, although it can be, um, as your local health department may not even be licensed to carry some of the vaccines, specifically thinking about things like yellow fever. Another thing we've noticed is that missionaries may receive conflicting guidance from organizations or agencies uh, regarding their needs for pre-travel medical care. Um, Many missionaries we've found rely on their sending agency to provide pre-travel health information, whereas a lot of the sending agencies will refer them to another resource. It's not uncommon for us to hear that people simply tell their missionaries, we say, go to the CDC website and, and see what you need there. Um, so there's really, I'm, I'm a psychologist, and it's this simple phenomenon of diffusion of responsibility. So, um, you know, missionaries assume that sending agencies would address their health issues, and sending agencies assume that missionaries are responsible for their health care needs. So this really creates a, a critical gap in the delivery of services. Um, third, missionaries are a range of travelers. So some missionaries are first-time travelers, people who have never left the United States. Other missionaries are much more experienced. And this is definitely something that I thank you so much for bringing up this point. I mean, we know that missionaries do really face this unique challenge. And honestly, it's something that we also face at CDC when we work overseas and when you're invited into someone's home and it's culturally offensive to refuse something. Um, And so that's where, I mean, you obviously you want to try. Somebody today this morning actually suggested, they said, 
They talked about bringing your own snacks and water. So if someone offers you water, you can say, you can show, oh, I have my own thank you um, snacks. If you have those kinds of things that are with you are great, um, especially because then it's also nice to share with other people. Here's something from my culture. Um, sometimes that can be a nice thing. Um, but, it, but you also bring up the issue of vigilance. And so missionaries that are in the field for a much longer time face additional challenges related to simply issues of adherence and compliance. You know, if you've been living in a place for a long time, it becomes really easy to think, oh, maybe I don't need to take my anti-malarials anymore. And that's, and then, so that is definitely a challenge that we recognize that missionaries face, for sure. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, that actually is a nice segue into, uh, um, you know, some of the information I was going to bring up about uh, destination. So, Missionaries travel to remote rural locations that are really far off the beaten track. Um, these are places that may lack sanitation or health infrastructure, so this puts them at an increased risk for disease, um, as well as limiting their ability to access high-quality care if they do fall sick. Um, transportation risks for missionaries are significant. Transportation risks are the greatest for any U.S. citizen abroad. Any traveler overseas, the thing that is most likely to hurt you is not malaria, but it's actually getting into a vehicle that doesn't have seatbelts, riding around in a car where people are speeding, um, it's, you know, too many people in the car, and, roll, you know, there's not really, it's a little bit more Mad Max than you would prefer for it to be in terms of the American rule, rules of the road. Um, so, you know, vehicles in other countries may be without seatbelts, and missionaries are often forced to reply, rely on public transportation systems that may be overcrowded and unsafe. Um, missionaries also need culturally appropriate care, and this is for missionaries themselves. Their faith or religious doctrine may affect their preparation activities if certain subjects are taboo, such as alcohol use or depression, um, or even prohibit the use of Western medicine, instead relying on prayer or other faith, faith-based interventions to prevent or treat illness or injury. Missionaries face unique challenges related to the duration of their travel. Um, mission trips can last anywhere from a couple of days to a lifetime abroad. Uh, missionary travel may also be short-notice emergency travel, so often in response to a humanitarian disaster, and this can leave missionaries without enough time to prepare. Other important considerations for missionaries to include is that their work is physically demanding. Missionaries build schools and churches and hospitals. I mean, this is back-breaking labor. Um, and again, you know, these other considerations such as being involved in emergency humanitarian aid response, those may have unique requirements related to that. So to give you guys an example of some of the risk, I looked for sort of publicly available data on different, you know, humanitarian aid organizations. I couldn't find any information as far as like a big entity like SIM. I couldn't find something like that on a comparable mission agency. But I did find data on sort of the health risks and it's sort of the profile of similar humanitarian aid workers. And so here um, I, I pulled some information on Médecins Sans Frontières, also known as MSF, or as we call them here in America, Doctors Without Borders. So you can see here many of the health concerns and risks of missionaries reflected when we look at this profile. Um, you know, the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West, Afri in West Africa saw an unprecedented response from them. So you saw this is, you know, people who are responding very quickly. They, had more to, they admitted more than 7,400 people to Ebola treatment units in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And of those that they admitted, more than 2,200 confirmed Ebola patients recovered from the disease. So they had 20, more than 2,200 survivors discharged back out to the 
communities. Um, MSF actually provided this cost at, an, you know, this medical care at an enormous cost to themselves, um, above and beyond the financial and physical toll from this kind of work. And a first for their agency, um, Ebola claimed the lives of 13 MSF workers. So MSF has been in the business for a long time, and they lost 13 of their very own to Ebola. This can give you guys kind of a sense. They've never had a case before, and they lost 13 people. Yeah. But that violent stuff is a little bit different. Yeah. So um, no MSF worker had ever been infected with Ebola during any of their previous responses to previous Ebola outbreaks, and they have done many, many, many. Um, worldwide, you can see, the, you know, the kind of impact that this entity has, you know, like, and so um, MSF has provided more than 8,250,700 outpatient consultations. So it's, you know, they provide a lot of medical care that isn't, you know, in these kind of specialized units. I mean, they provided more than a million of those just in the Democratic Republic of the Congo alone. So you can see they're doing a lot of everyday medical care in addition to these emergency responses. So it's just to give you guys an example of, you know, comparable work to what's being done to missionary agencies. And one thing that's really important to note is that MSF staff are also subject to some of the same dangers that missionaries' uh, counterparts may face. So in 2014, uh, MSF staff were killed during armed robberies in the Central African Republic at an MSF hospital. In South Sudan, their hospital wards were actually burned to the ground, and they had their hospital supplies were looted, and several staff members were abducted. So these are, you know, I give these examples here just to show that missionaries may face many of these same challenges when working abroad. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about examples of outbreaks of illness um, that we've seen in missionaries. I'm going to talk about some of the things that we've seen overseas, as well as some of the things, some of the lovely presents that people brought back with them from abroad, and they decided to share to share with others, unfortunately. So CDC has surveillance data of uh, ill travelers. We have a global TRAV, uh, it's called G10, the global TRAV EFINET, and um, that is for pre-travel health care. But then we also have surveillance of ill return travelers, so people that present at a travel medicine clinic um, with illness, with symptoms, and that's actually uh, a, a cro across the world. So it's actually a network. It's called um, GeoSentinel. I'm blanking on this today. I need some more caffeine. Um, but so from, these, from this data we can show here, I can show you guys some of the most common, these are the most common events amongst ill return travelers. So, you know, this can really tell us what the primary issues are, what you would expect to see from missionaries when they're returning field. The primary complaint amongst travelers who seek medical care, it's related to GI issues. It's, you know, diarrhea, vomiting, that kind of thing. And these are followed by respiratory infections, fever, systemic illnesses, and skin or dermatological conditions, so things like ringworm, rashes, that kind of stuff. Coming in fifth on the list are insect-borne diseases, and that's actually where you would see things like malaria, dengue, chikungunya, and then animal bites. And animal bites are really of concern because there's obviously a risk for uh, potential rabies exposure. So we have seen at the CDC multiple outbreaks among missionaries who are overseas, a few of which I'm going to highlight here. Um, so dengue is in particular an important pathogen when considering missionary health. And in recent years at CDC, we have seen multiple outbreaks among missionaries. Um, so these are all clusters of infection for which we have laboratory-confirmed evidence of infection. So not just people saying, I'm in a lot of pain. I mean, dengue is known as breakbone fever. 
it is excruciatingly painful for those individuals that are symptomatic. So in, in 2008, uh, 42% of a group of missionaries were found to be positive for dengue after a few of them fell, fell ill. A 2010 group of missionaries to Haiti had 21% confirmed with evidence of dengue infection. And in 2012, we saw two different clusters amongst two different missionary groups, a group to Jamaica where 27% had evidence of dengue infection and 15% of a group to Haiti had evidence of dengue infection. One important thing to know about these dengue outbreaks is that they didn't necessarily occur among missionaries who had been in these countries for a long period of time. Um, Several of these clusters were people who had just been down in these countries for basically seven days or so. Um, you know, these are people who'd only been in country for a week, so you don't have to be someplace for a long time to be at risk. Um, chikungunya is a virus that you may have been hearing more and more about nowadays. Um, chikungunya is an alpha virus that has a clinically similar presentation to dengue, and it's also carried by the same mosquito ve- vector, which uh, one thing that's really unique about this mosquito vector is that she bites during daylight hours. And I know a lot of people think if I sleep under a bed net, I'm good for malaria. That's correct. Those mosquitoes that carry malaria bite their night buyers. But dengue-carrying mosquitoes and chikungunya-carrying mosquitoes, she likes to bite, you know, in the, in the early morning and evening hours. So times when it's still daylight and when people aren't, aren't under their bed nets. Um, so chikungunya had never been seen uh, before in the Western Hemisphere prior to 2014, and it rapidly spread throughout the hemisphere. Um, to date, we've seen more than 1.7 million suspected cases of chikungunya reported to PAHO, the Pan American uh, Health Organization. And surveillance uh, currently indicates that cases of chikungunya have been detected in a minimum of 45 different countries and territories throughout the Americas. Um, I mean, and this is something, too, that's as close as, I mean, it's in Puerto Rico, it's in Haiti, it's in the Dominican Republic, it's in Mexico, it's creeping its way through Central and South America, so it's definitely something that's of concern. I have a question on that one. Mm-hmm. I live in the city of something that is we're, we're expecting it to continue to spread further because it is spread so easily through the mosquito vector and people in these regions are very very mobile across the border um, and so I don't know I can't speak to the specifics as far as where things are at in the development of for example a, a chikungunya specific um, vaccine I know there is movement uh, we're getting closer and closer towards a dengue vaccine which would be great but as you pointed out chikungunya is unique um, it has a mild. It is. It has a milder course of illness, but it does. It is associated with longer, uh, longer-term sequelae. So people have chronic arthritis for a long time, um, lots of joint pain and things like that. So some patients do, but fortunately, it has a lower uh, mortality rate than dengue. Um, There's no double whammy with it, like the hemorrhagic fever that you get with dengue. I so I don't think it has. I, I know there have been deaths from chikungunya, but my. I, I don't know enough about chick specifically as a pathogen to speak about. I know, I mean, it's... But it's not likely to have a recurrent illness like dengue does? No, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. And did you say they were cousins? Those were cousins? No, so um, dengue is... Uh, 
I know chikungunya is an alpha virus, and dengue is a different kind of virus, which I'm blanking on right now. It, flavivirus, yes, yes, uh, flavivirus. So it is a different, it is, it is a different family, yeah. Um, but they do, I mean, it's hard because they look clinically very similar. The diagnostics, it's not as though there is a great, you know, I mean, malaria, you can do a finger prick test, and in 15 minutes know if somebody has certain species of malaria infection. And unfortunately for chikungunya and dengue, no such tests exist. You have to do multiple blood tests over an extended period of time to really get that confirmed diagnosis. Yeah, and it's not available in a lot of and it's not available in a lot of areas, even outside of the United States. So, um, so moving past sort of vector-borne diseases, um, in 2013, a family of missionaries uh, were, that were living in Haiti reported that they were symptomatic with pertussis, uh, also known as whooping cough. Um, they reported that an outbreak of whooping cough was occurring in their community, and that the youngest member of their household, which was actually a two-month-old infant, um, she had been infected, and this is really tragic because she's somebody who's, this baby's too young to even be eligible for a vaccination. So she's, you know, when you get a vaccine, it's not just about protecting you. It's about pre- protecting the people that are around you. Um, the United Methodist Church has report, previously reported a death from diphtheria um, amongst their missionaries, and diphtheria is a vaccine-preventable disease um, that can cause death in 5 to 10% of those infected. Um, so I can't speak to the specifics on either one. So the, avail- the information that's available on the diphtheria case, there's not, it's not publicly available as to whether or not that was somebody who was previously vaccinated. Um, and the information on the pertussis case, I mean, some of that were, some of those were family members who would have been potentially eligible for vaccination uh, based on their age. Um, but potentially there's also, I'm not sure how long the family had been living in Haiti and if they had, you know, had the ability to vaccinate their children as they came of age appropriately previously. But so that's why, I mean, you know, you for yourself can, can get yourself up to date. And if you're traveling with kids, making sure that they are also appropriately on schedule. Um, malaria is another vector-borne disease that affects missionaries abroad. Um, CDC does conduct surveillance for malaria among U.S. citizens. Our current systems um, don't actually capture those individuals specifically who are treated for malaria overseas before returning to the U.S. So if you are living in Kenya for a long time, you get malaria, and you pursue treatment over there, the United States is never going to know about it unless you end up back in the United States with malaria in one of our hospitals. Other more unusual illnesses have also been documented among missionaries. In 1992, a missionary stationed in Bangladesh actually died after contracting rabies. They were bitten on the thumb. Um, And this case actually prompted CDC to partner with the Catholic Foreign Mission Society of America to survey their missionaries. We did an assessment of knowledge, attitudes, and practices related to rabies vaccination. So sort of looking at did missionaries understand You know, if you get bitten by an animal, you basically have to assume that you've had a rabies exposure and you need to pursue rig, you know, ASAP um, and that kind of thing. So you can actually find there's a paper online if you're interested, and I can give you the link. Um, Histoplasmosis is a fungal disease that occurs when humans come into contact with soil contaminated with bird or bat droppings. In 2008, there were actually three groups of missionaries from two different states that had gone to El Salvador, and they were involved in renovating a church there. Um, After nine missionaries from one of the groups of 11 fell ill, uh, CDC and the state health departments actually did a formal investigation of all three missionary groups because they realized that they were were connected. 
Um, they talked to 33 of the missionaries, so they talked to 33 out of the 35, and 20 actually met their case definition for histoplasmosis, so that's a lot of them. Two-thirds of them got sick with histo. Um, schistosomiasis or bilharzia is an infection that's caused by parasitic worms, and surveillance data of ill-returned travelers has identified missionary or voluntary worker, work travelers to be more likely to be diagnosed with schisto, and this is we've seen cases coming from multiple countries. So this is why it's really important um, to try to stay out of fresh water. <laughs> and if you get sick when you come back and you report different activities that you've been engaged in, um, if you're seeking medical care, you say, hey, I was a missionary, this is where I was, these are the, all the different things I did, because that can help somebody make really nail down that diagnosis. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about missionary outbreaks that have occurred here back at home. So outbreaks are not limited to those that have occurred abroad. In several cases, missionaries have become infected while overseas and then returned home to infect others here in the U.S. In 2005, a 17-year-old missionary traveler went to Romania and worked in an orphanage and hospital where a measles outbreak was later reported. The teen girl had not been previously vaccinated for measles and returned to the U.S. with prodromal fever, cough, conjunctivitis, and coryza. This index patient later attended a large church gathering, which was attended by others who had not been vaccinated because of non-medical exemptions. 34 cases of measles were later traced back to this one index patient, including three patients who required hospitalization. In 2013, a traveler to Indonesia was exposed to measles and attended a worship service at a large church in Texas. 25 cases of measles were later traced back to this index patient, including a four-month-old infant who was too young to have been vaccinated for measles at that time. More recently, a large measles outbreak in Ohio occurred in 2014, a result of, a measles, of measles that was imported from the Philippines. This was a result of a single unvaccinated traveler. The missionary returned home to their Amish community where vaccination rates had declined over health concerns from previous vaccination efforts. These low vaccination rates created a pocket of susceptible people. A total of 342 people became ill with measles, including nine patients who had to be hospitalized. This outbreak actually mirrored really closely a measles outbreak that had previously occurred in British Columbia. There was a population there of Christian Dutch reformers who refused vaccines over safety concerns, and this resulted in over 400 measles cases amongst their population during a measles outbreak. To give you a sense of scale, so there were 400 cases um, amongst this one Dutch reform population group, and in Canada that year, they only had 512 total. So more than 400 out of their 512 all came from this one single outbreak. We also know that missionary groups and uh, missionary entities, church entities, um, international adoptions are very common amongst missionaries and other religious groups. One thing that's really important to know is when you're adopting from kids, kids overseas, children may, not be, may be inadequately vaccinated, so they can be vulnerable to illness and they can also spread disease. And this is something that's really tricky and you want to try to pursue very closely with the adoption agencies that you're working with, ensuring that you know, kids have actually been vaccinated, that their documentation is real, and then following up with care appropriately here in the U.S. Uh, once they land stateside. Another outbreak that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, um, two U.S. citizens were infected with Ebola while working at Elwa. This is a missionary facility in Monrovia, Liberia. They're both believed to have been infected outside of the ETU. They were medically evacuated to the U.S. for care, and they were survived and discharged in August 2014. 
Unfortunately, that was not the last missionary. And there was another U.S. citizen who was infected with Ebola, again, I believe to be outside of the ETU. Um, he was actually somebody who was not working in the ETU at all, providing care outside of the ETU. Again, medically evacuated to the United States for care, treated at the University of Nebraska, survived and discharged in September that same year. We've also seen additional cases of Ebola amongst missionaries from other countries, so several priests and several nuns, people that were working in communities in West Africa, um, have been infected and uh, have been since evacuated to other countries. Um, many of them did not survive. With regards to travel to West Africa to assist with the Ebola outbreak, the U.S. government currently advises against any non-essential travel to Guinea. So we issue travel notices for countries based on risk profiles. And so this is sort of the highest level travel notice that CDC will issue. It's level three. It's, it's red when you look at it on our website. Obviously, that's meant to connotate that you should stop and think before you decide to go. Um, for Sierra Leone, we recommend that you pre practice enhanced precautions. Um, all things, you know, on, on, are, are looking like tomorrow the country will be declared Ebola-free officially for Sierra Leone, which will be a great, a great day for that country. They have been waiting for it a long time. And Liberia is, um, we recommend that you practice usual precautions. So it's important, the reason why we have these recommendations is it's really important to remember that the risks extend beyond just that of Ebola infection. Um, there's been a complete collapse of extremely limited healthcare infrastructure. These are places that had, you know, 1,700, there are 1,700 doctors at Bellevue Hospital where one um, U.S. patient was treated, and there are about 1,700 doctors amongst the three countries um, of West Africa that are responsible for all the Ebola patients. So there's just not a lot of healthcare providers there, period. Um, there's limited access to care, and their routine, routine vaccination programs have basically were discontinued during the outbreak because there was no way to safely deliver them. Um, there are documented other disease risks. So WHO has reported a case of vaccine-derived polio in Guinea, and we've had measles outbreaks reported in uh, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Um, the other side of this token is we also recognize that healthcare workers are the most critical part of stopping any Ebola outbreak. The outbreak is slowing. Uh, the case incidence has remind, remained at uh, five or less cases per week for 14 consecutive weeks for the region. Um, one thing that's important to know, uh, with you, when you, if you are thinking about ever being involved in a response to Ebola or something like this, so travel insurance, um, once they realized, oh, no, we may be on the hook for people that require an evacuation on Phoenix Airlines, it costs, you know, at least $100,000 to get that plane off the ground. We don't want to be on the hook for that. So travel, some travel insurance companies did say they were not going to provide coverage for people that were needed to be evacuated for, as a result of Ebola infection. Um, we did learn a lot, CDC, as well as the larger humanitarian and missionary aid community, about the importance of preparation and planning and collaboration with a diverse array of partners. So now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how, you know, how, how do you, as, as medical missionaries, currently prepare for international travel? So we really, our first thing is we think, you know, we, we recommend that you visit two sites really um, key to, to helping you. The first one is the U.S. Uh, Department of State Smart Traveler Enrollment Program, which is STEP. Um, there's a website, and there's also a smartphone app. The thing that's great about STEP is it goes both ways. So if you have an emergency and you show up at the embassy, they're not going to be surprised. They know that you're there. 
um, and they can help you. It's also helpful if your family back here in the United States has an emergency and needs to reach out to you out in the field. The Smart Traveler Enrollment Program actually provides them with a conduit through which they can say they can reach to the State Department and say, hey, you know, I need to reach my brother. You know, this something has happened, and, and they can put you in touch through the embassy. So it does go. That really is neat because it does go both ways. Um, we also really recommend, obviously, visiting the CDC Traveler's Health website, um, cdc.gov slash travel, and it really offers up-to-date um, information on health issues for travelers. For those of you who came this morning, some of this will be a little bit of a repeat. Um, before you go, we really recommend that you read up on your destination. You can visit our website, learn more about, you know, your specific needs. You also have the ability to check what type of traveler you are. We have CDC makes specific recommendations for missionary travelers. We recognize they have unique health needs. We also recommend that you talk to a healthcare provider four to six weeks before you go. If you can see a travel medicine specialist, that's great. Um, but we also know that that may be something that people don't have access to. If you want to find one near you, on the CDC website, you can search for a travel medicine clinic. We actually have a directory. So if you go to the website, cdc.gov travel, you can find a travel medicine provider nearest to you. But it's also good for you to make sure that if you, if you can't get to a travel medicine provider, that you let your general practitioner or whoever you're going to see, you let them know, I'm coming in for a travel consultation so that way they aren't surprised when you come in and say, hey, I need, you know, six months' worth of blood pressure medication because I'm going to Kenya. And they're trying to figure out, oh, man, do you need a typhoid shot? Do you need antimalarials? What else does this person need? So it is, you know, it is good to give them a heads up. Really discuss your itinerary and potential activities with them. Um, they can help you make a good plan and help you identify potential risks as well as how to mitigate those. And you're going to need to review with them your current uh, medical conditions and any medication. So making a plan for things like, I'm going to be traveling. How much blood pressure medication do I need? If I'm on insulin, how do I plan for that to make sure that I have that? These early travel visits will also give you time to fill uh, travel-related prescription medications. This is often things like anti-malaria medication um, or diarrhea. A lot of people will get prescriptions for self-treatment for antibiotics. Um, it's also important to, we do recommend, CDC does recommend that you consider travel medicine insurance. And you just also have plenty of time to treat your clothes and your bed nets to reduce bites. So there's this fantastic chemical out there. I know chemical kind of sounds like a bad word. There's a fantastic product out there called permethrin. And I love it because you can treat your clothes with permethrin. Obviously, don't treat your underwear, but your shirts, your pants, all that kind of stuff, you can treat it with permethrin, and it will, and, it, and, the, and the chemical, it bonds to the fabric, and it will keep mosquitoes and other critters that bite away, which is a great compliment um, for those of you who may forget sometimes to reapply um, deep-containing insect repellent more than once. So. <clears throat> you can get it at, I think you can get it at Walmart. You can get it at, you can definitely find it at sporting goods stores. Um, it's, yeah, you can you can find it. Um, it's not at REI. Um, you can find it online. Amazon sells it. Um, there are a couple of different, and it, it's great because it lasts through usually a couple of washes. So that's even better. Um, we do recommend that you pack yourself a travel health kit. You can find a more detailed list of things to include, but just some of the highlights here include things like you know over-the-counter medications that you might need, Tylenol, aspirin, that kind of thing. 
basic first aid items, insect repellent. CDC does recommend um, a product that contains 20 to 50 percent uh, DEET. Um, unfortunately, I know things like Avon Skin So Soft, it smells really nice, but unfortunately it just doesn't work to actually keep you from getting bitten. Um, sunscreen as well as alcohol-based hand sanitizer. You always want to wash your hands every chance you get um, because um, hand sanitizer does not work as well on if your hands are really dirty. So if you've been, for example, helping to build um, a church or a school or something like that and your hands are you know, really grimy, you need to actually wash the dirt off so that the hand sanitizer is then killing the bacteria and germs that are left behind instead of just trying to rinse off the dirt. Um, we also recommend that you carry contact cards so you can put, you know, just little pieces of information, throw them in a Ziploc bag, toss it in your luggage, and really just forget about it. But information for your healthcare provider at home, anything you would have for while you were abroad, if you're traveling, if you're the doctor, or if you're traveling with another physician, um, as, you know, information for your sending agency, and medical insurance information that might be relevant. Um, as I said before, while you're out, we also recommend, you know, wash your hands a lot, basically more than you think you need you to. You need to. Everybody knows, oh, you wash your hands before you eat and after you go to the bathroom, but really just wash your hands a lot more often. And hand gels it. Sometimes, so it is there, so the actual data on hand washing is such that if you have access to, you know, Water, maybe it's not clean enough water for you to drink, um, but you can use that with soap and, and, and wash your hands with that. It doesn't, it, we're not saying you have to have, you know, purified water. It's hard when you're in a resource con constrained environment and you have limited access to water and all you have is drinking water. That can be more difficult and then you would need to be much more reliant on um, hand sanitizer. Allie? So wet wipes are great because those would help remove the bulk if you needed to. And then, again, if you had liquid hand sanitizer that you could follow up with. The liquid is nice because it really, if you look at um, the dirtiest parts of people's hands, it's really the nooks and crannies. So it's like around the nail beds. It's in between their thumbs where people don't, you know, nobody, nobody washes their hands like this. I mean, they tell you that's how you're supposed to wash your hands, but people just don't do it that often. Yes. <coughs> So it is effective against certain viruses, but not all viruses. So unfortunately, something that probably, a virus that many people in here have probably fallen prey to at some point in their life is norovirus, also known as, yes, just like projectile vomiting. I mean, your body basically just rings itself out. Um, that, unfortunately, is something that hand sanitizer is not effective against, and so that's why we recommend the, the complement of washing your hands and using hand sanitizer. So. These are all great questions. Um, staying hydrated with boiled water, with bottled water. So you want to, you know, we do recommend try to stay away from the bag pouches. You may see they're really common. If you've ever been to Haiti, people will sell them to you. They're very easily resealed just with a hot iron, and people could, you know, put whatever kind of water in there. Um, and then they're also stored a lot of times in coolers that have ice that's melted, so there's a lot of, bacteria and germs and things floating around and 
then you're going to take that bag and put it in your mouth, and you want to try to not do that, <laughs> try to avoid that. Um, so, so buying bottled water that you, you know, you open yourself and you hear the seal break is, is ideal. Um, we really recommend eating food that is hot. It needs to be steaming hot when it's served to you. Wash it, peel it, cook it, or forget it. I love to eat bananas overseas because I can peel them, and they're not going to be... They're not going to be unsafe. And bananas outside of the United States taste so much better than American bananas. They really just do. They really do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good point too. If you're gonna if you're gonna be cutting things, you need to you need to wash it beforehand and and recommend you can wash it. um, There are recipes online for how to, how to appropriately disinfect fruit. One more? So people who wear contacts. Um, so CDC recommendations are essentially for contacts. Um, contacts are really tricky because anytime you put your finger into the, your eye, you run the risk of, of introducing a pathogen. And I can speak from experience because... I've given myself an eye infection in the field for my contacts. Um, one way that's really easy to bypass that is if you can wear the dailies. So that way, if you have the one a day, if it's a, if it's a shorter trip, it's a lot easier because then you're not trying to put a dirty, con- you know, a contact lens that you've attempted to clean and then put back into your eye. Um, so if you can wear daily contacts, that's one way to reduce the risk. Um, really using the hydrogen peroxide containing contact lens solutions, so products like ClearCare, where it actually has to sit for six hours minimum um, to to really soak, and that will get a lot of the physical debris off. Um, Depending on where you're working, your sending agency may have a policy that contacts are, in fact, not allowed. So I worked in an Ebola treatment unit, and I could not wear my contacts the whole time I was there because they just said, we don't want you touching your face any more than you're already going to be going to, so no contacts. And um, it probably also was helpful for things like the chlorine gas exposure too, just in our eyes. But um, if you wear one state, if you wear the, the daily contact lenses, you can reduce your risk that way um, using the hydrogen peroxide containing cleaning solution. Making sure you have clean hands um, before you ever touch your eyes to put in or take out contact lenses. Um, and then, honestly, the easiest thing is to just bring two pairs of glasses, you know, in case you break one, and just wear those the whole time. So that's a great question, though. Um, again, more tips wearing sunscreen, you know, and this is something that you need to reapply. Uh, using insect repellent, again, 20 to 50% DEET. Um, remembering that you need to reapply, you need to put on more than once a day. If you, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be, it's, it's most likely going to be hot and you're going to be sweating and you will be sweating off your sunscreen. You'll be sweating off your insect repellent. And, you know, every time you wipe your face, you take off a little bit of that product. And remembering not all mosquitoes that carry diseases bite at night. Um, Take your medicines as they're prescribed. So setting up a schedule, maybe having a buddy for accountability. Okay, we're both taking malarone. That means we both take our malarone at the same time every day. And I'm required, you know, I'm going to check in with you and make sure you took your anti-malarial pill and you're going to check in with me, and, and that system can work really well. We do also recommend that you do try to avoid the unsafe road situation, so really avoiding motorcycles, period. Um, avoiding, motor, avoiding riding a motorcycle without a helmet, 
um, really, wor- really working to avoid uh, drunk drivers um, being on the road late at night, um, try not to get into a vehicle with um, a driver that is visibly intoxicated if you have to get on public transportation, uh, and really trying to not ride in the back of a truck. I know it seems cool, um, but I promise your rear end will thank you. It's not comfortable back there, and it's really, really dangerous. So if you develop a fever after you get back from your trip, it's really important that you seek medical care immediately. And it's also really important that you tell your, travel, you, you tell your medical provider, hey, I have been traveling. This can be a little bit harder when you're further away from your trip, but it is still really important to remember, you know, to say to your, to say to your doctor, your nurse, hey, I've been outside of the United States. Here's where I was. Here's what I did. And that can help them do a better assessment and provide better medical care uh, for you. If you um, fall sick or are injured during your trip, we do recommend as well that you just follow up with medical care back in the United States and say, hey, you know, I had a lot of really bad diarrhea or I had a really nasty infection, that kind of thing, and you follow up with medical care back in the United States with your provider just to see if there's anything else that you need to do or that they would recommend. Um, It's really, really important that you complete your malaria medication as it is prescribed. Um, You, you know, there is a window of time during which you can develop malaria after you come back to the United States. Um, it's really important that you do not keep or give away your antibiotics, so don't say, I'm going to save these for my next trip. You know, I'm, don't say to yourself, I'm going to you know, give these away to people there in the community before I leave. Oh, this person, and this can be really hard. People will approach you and say, like, I know you're leaving. Can you give me some of your medicine before you go? But do not do that. It contributes to antibiotic resistance. And it makes, that, it makes antibiotics uh, less helpful for all of us in the long run. Um, and it's also really important that you seek support for mental health issues. You guys do a lot of really hard work, and you see a lot of things that can be really tough. And so it's appropriate and really important that you um, get the appropriate support that you need after your return back to the States. So CDC has a lot of resources um, for different healthcare providers. So we publish um, every other year a book known as the Yellow Book or the CDC Health Information for International Travel. The 2016 edition is already out. It's amazing. We time traveled. Um, We also have recurring clinical outreach and communication or COCA conference calls or webinars. And so these are, there's the website that's listed up there. It's emergency.cdc.gov slash COCA slash calls. And you can, pull, you can basically call into these different things, and it will be um, different subject matter experts offering information about um, important issues for clinicians to know about. Um, CDC also has, we publish uh, Medscape commentary videos, so you can go on to Medscape for free and pull up videos there. We have a chikungunya update for clinicians that's helpful. It's really brief. You also find things like we have a video on CDC interim guidance on polio vaccine requirements for travelers abroad because this is something that's kind of changed, especially in recent years as we, you know, inch closer and closer and closer, and we're going to get there, to polio eradication. I know some of you are going to be getting uh, continuing education credits for attending this session today, but you can also get more CE credits online through some of the different training courses that we have. Um, Online, this launched, um, I believe it was last year, the Dengue Clinical Case Management course. This is a great class. 
Um, we also have um, a coca call that's stored online that you get CE credits for, and it's on chikungunya virus specifically, an emerging threat to the Americas. There's a great class about yellow fever vaccine, and this is something that you can learn a lot about, um, and you can learn more about the history of yellow fever, the contraindications and precautions with regards to administering the vaccine, and adverse events that are associated with the yellow fever vaccine and what the relative risks of those are. Um, you can also take the rabies post-exposure prophylaxis uh, course, um, and then you can also take, we have a class called TB101 for healthcare workers, and these are all really, really easy. Um, some of the final things that we just wanted to end on a discussion with you guys is really, this is your opportunity to provide us with some feedback on what are the best ways for us to reach missionaries and medical missionaries, and, and what are the common health concerns, and what are your concerns before, during, or after travel, and, and how can we learn more about the unique health needs of missionaries? We know, we know they're different, and, and we want to make sure that we're able to, to keep you guys healthy and safe so you can be successful in your mission. Mm-hmm. You can register mm-hmm. and say, I'm going here for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, provide your email and stuff. And if they just touch bases with you. Okay. So yeah. something that would be more more like a registration type thing? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was in Liberia for four months. Mm-hmm. And I felt very... Removed. Isolated. Yeah. To say it better. Yeah, no. We do have, so we have over 245 unique destination pages on the CDC website. So you can pull up, specifically you can say, I'm going to go to Liberia. I am an immunocompromised traveler, and I'm going to be a humanitarian aid worker. And it will actually pull up specific health recommendations. And it will, for Liberia and for you as an immunocompromised traveler that's going to do humanitarian aid and missionary work. Um, we are constantly working to improve the recommendations for missionaries um, because, again, we do know that they are at an increased risk. Um, but that's a great suggestion that, you know, creating almost like an, like an automated yeah, system or something. You, know, you register, I'm going here, I'm leaving this date, this is my projected return date, mm-hmm. and then somebody just kind of... Yeah. The State Department, I know, does, if, so if you, reg- if you register with STEP, um, that program, we keep our recommendations very much in line with, with the State Department. So if there's a security incident or something like that, it will actually often pop up on our website, and the State Department does refer to us when it comes to health concerns. So if there was, I mean, so the State Department, for example, they had language about Ebola in West Africa, and it was all information that they got directly from CDC. So, but, that is, but that's a great suggestion. We have something else? Do you have any um, thoughts on doxycycline versus I'm not a clinician, so I cannot make specific recommendations. I know that people have preferences, and there are issues related to sun sensitivity um, and things like that. Costs can often be very prohibitive for things like um, malarone because I think it, I believe it runs around three dollars a pill. Um, so that's good. That's good. Um, and um, there. Are, I mean, they're both they're both daily medications, um, so there's not really a cost benefit as far as that goes. So, but I think. Yeah, yeah. 
That's a that's a really great point. I mean, if you have a health condition, and, and it could be as simple as I have a peanut allergy. If you have a peanut allergy and you're going to parts of Africa, you are going to come into contact with peanuts. They're going to be everywhere. And so making sure that other people are aware of that and, and knowing what your plan is and, and being able to plan for that appropriately is really, really important. So, you know, if you have somebody whose job it is on your mission team to carry all that information for people, that's great. And they can provide a resource for medical evacuation services, um, having contact back in the U.S. that has that kind of information. Um, and also, if you do receive medical care abroad, CDC does recommend that you try to get a copy of your medical records. So, for example, if you get treated for something, um, trying to get a copy of that, preferably in English, um, but, co- but a copy of those medical records that you can bring back to the United States, that is, that is very important as well. So that's a great point. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let Allie, but I'm going to punt Allie on this one. No, but this year's, everything I've seen so far this year on this year's vaccine is that it looks like it's a good match, at least better than last year's was. And it is available. Go get your flu shot. It is, it is different. It is different. They do have a different, I mean, so flu season basically falls in, in winter when people are, are indoors. And so that's when you will see a seasonal peak. It's when you see a seasonal peak in norovirus and you see it in influenza as well. And so since it's, spring, summer down there, um, they are experiencing a, you know, they, they are exiting their flu season, whereas we are really heading, heading into ours. So, but it is, I mean, the thing about um, flu vaccine and things like that is you can be pretty much anywhere in the world 24 hours from right now. Um, and vac- you know, pathogens don't get their passport stamped at the border. So it's really, really important to, you know, think about, you know, when you, when you can get flu vaccine, make sure you jump on it and get it. So, but it is not, in fact, flu season in the Southern Hemisphere. They're exiting flu season right now. What do you mean? Deep vein thrombosis type? So it's interesting. They've actually done, there's a study recently that was done, I believe it was done out of Georgia Tech, and they had, they put these poor grad students and they just sat them in the back of a plane and flew them back and forth across the country to see how many times the stewardesses and the flight attendants moved up and down the aisle and how many passengers got up and where they all moved. And these are computer scientists. They modeled all of it out. And they did environmental sampling of the air and they also swabbed different surfaces um, trying to figure out sort of sort of where, you know, what would be the most contaminated places. And it was pretty surprising in terms of what they found that um, there isn't good evidence to show really that, you know, like 
pathogens just spread spread rapidly through throughout a plane. We do know, I mean, there are CDC has specific recommendations for things like, you know, measles. Obviously, measles is so incredibly infectious. We need to talk to every single person on that plane because they're at risk. If somebody coughs in a room and, and has measles and then you walk in later, you can get measles. That's, that is how incredibly infectious measles is. It's absolutely bananas to think about how infectious that is. Um, a lot of other pathogens, fortunately, are not as hardy. Um, we do have, you know, CDC will conduct um, an air investigation. We'll find people if you're on a plane where somebody is flying with tuberculosis. But generally speaking, if you're on a plane, you know, wash your hands after you use the bathroom. Wash your hands before you eat. Try to limit touching your face. Um, it'd be a good idea to take your contacts out before you fly if you're planning on taking them out during the flight just so it's one less exposure on the plane. Stay well hydrated. Get up and move around. Um, but we don't actually have specific recommendations because there isn't evidence to support a real need for it, fortunately, which is good. So, And planes have HEPA filters and, and things like that, so they are pulling a lot of junk out of the air. I wish I had specific recommendations for how to just eliminate jet lag. Cause, but then I'd be a millionaire. So, unfortunately, that's just part of the job. So, yeah. One of my recommendations would be that you put down to drink bottled water, but you need to know where the bottled water is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what we had to go to was the national brand of bottled water instead of a local brand. A local brand, brand yes. And that's, that can be something that's really tough to, to stay on top of. But, you know, if you can do research about, you know, fortunately, um, you know, the world is much more connected. You may be able to find information online about if people have had previous experiences. But making sure your bottled water, you know, is is from a safe source, you know, if it's, bottled by the Coca-Cola company or something like that. I mean, they have really strict standards. Um, regardless of what your feelings are on big corporate America, I mean, Coca-Cola, it's the same. It's the same wherever they are. So if you can find the bigger the entity, the more likely they are to meet international standards. So that's a great point. Thank you. I think that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank you guys all for coming. I do really appreciate it. Um, Please grab some of, we have a few of the sheets up here left if you'd like one. And thank you all so much.